Welcome to Next Left. I'm John Nichols of The Nation magazine. This is a political podcast that looks forward, not backward. We're interested in new ideas, new candidates, new ways of campaigning, and new ways of upending status quo politics. We begin with a set of ground rules. Ground rule number one, no presidential candidates. That makes things harder because it seems like everyone is running for president in 2020. But we're talking to the people who will be running for president 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We're talking to the people who will forge and define the next left. Our second ground rule is just as strict as the first. No of the momentism. We aren't going to focus on the controversy du jour. We're not going to obsess about what the president just tweeted or about the latest ginned up controversy. We're obsessed with the people whose energy and ideas are generating a new politics and renewing the promise that another world is possible. We want to get to know the change agents and the challengers, the rabble-rousers and the rebels. We want to understand how they got turned on to politics, where their ideas come from, why they chose to step up at this point, and how they plan to change communities, states, and the nation. This podcast extends from a remarkable moment in American politics. At The Nation magazine in the past few years, we've been covering people who have been stepping off from picket lines and out of demonstrations and going straight into the corridors of power. But these people don't forget where they come from. On Next Left, we'll be talking to people at every level of politics. We'll talk to members of Congress who've been on the front cover of Time magazine and Newsweek. But we'll also talk to city council members, state legislators, and other folks who you may never have heard of, but who you need to know. We believe that in coming to understand who these people are, we will get to know a lot more about our politics and about the intersection of movements and elections and governing where real change, fundamental change, becomes possible. We begin today with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who represents the 5th District of Minnesota. We met in her office in Washington, where visitors are greeted by an image of Shirley Chisholm, who 50 years ago was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. Omar is herself a woman of many firsts. She is the first Somali-American in Congress, the first naturalized citizen from Africa in Congress, the first woman of color to represent Minnesota, one of the first two Muslim women to serve in the House. She is the first member of Congress to wear a hijab and she is the first guest on Next Left. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I wanted to start with the statement you made on the night you were elected. And I hope I, I get it right, that it was Minnesota doesn't just welcome immigrants, it sends them to Congress. Did that just occur to you or did you think about that a little before you said it? Because that, that was a strikingly good opening line for a congressional career. Yeah. Trump came to Minnesota two days before the 2016 elections. And that piece really is, is a significant piece in the documentary time for Ilhan that's about my election to the Minnesota House. And there's this, this question, right, about what, what happens in a, in a time where someone who was running for president, who eventually becomes president, has used his platform to demonize refugees and immigrants and to tell Minnesotans that they 
should not be as welcoming and that without their knowledge, these people were just coming into their state. It sort of was a, a reminder that in Minnesota, we didn't just welcome refugees. We were proud enough to send them to Congress. And it was a remarkable moment. I remember covering that. And I remember that it was a strategic play by Donald Trump and his campaign. They surprised people by winning Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, Michigan. But they thought Minnesota might be one of their states as well. Yeah. And they came in at the end. And Trump had a component in his speech that mm-hmm. was uh, really quite visceral as regards uh, Somali immigrants, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Right. And so suddenly you're elected. Mm-hmm. And you had this teaching moment. And it strikes me that in watching you, you are conscious of teaching moments and of that opportunity to, to say something that might, mm-hmm. might cause people to think differently about right. what's going on. Right. I mean, I think, you know, people have a misconception about refugees and, and the process they go through to come to the United States. They certainly have uh, been misinformed about the process of resettlement as well. And the Republicans, you know, are really good at misinformation and sort of really reorganizing (laughs) facts to sort of paint a picture that really eventually is not rooted in, in facts. Um, we had a, a a person who was running for governor, and he kept talking about ending the resettlement program and and making sure that you know that that wasn't going to happen. I remember I, I wrote this tweet and I said, you know, I wish that you would take the time to at least educate yourself about how the resettlement program works. There are agencies that run the resettlement program. This is. This is a process that's run through them. If you end that contract, it's not that refugees are not going to be resettled. It's that the state just doesn't get informed. And so the only leverage you have is that you are part of this contract and you can be part of the the negotiations on how many people get resettled in your state. And so it is not that they might not be knowledgeable about this, but they use it as a, as a tool to steer up hate and division. And ignorance really is pervasive uh, in many parts of, of this country. And as someone who was raised by educators, I, I really like to inform people about, about things that they might be ignorant to willingly or unwillingly. And I'm interested in your experience, obviously influences not just who you are, but also your politics. You spent a substantial portion of your childhood as a refugee in an an exodus experience to some extent. Do you have a, were you conscious as a child of being buffeted about by geopolitical differences in that? I know your parents were educators. When did you start to become aware of the fact that politics and governments could have profound positive or very negative effects on people's lives. Yeah, I think I was aware of all of it actually quite young. 
you know, this is this is again goes to to my distaste for a lot of the kind of journalism we have here in the United States these days. I grew up really being glued to the news. Listening to BBC was very much part of my day-to-day life from like four to, to eight in, in, in the most ways that I can remember. And so, you know, we we learned really about much of what was happening around the world. I was quite informed about the Cold War and the the kind of struggles that some of the the African nations that remained under colonial power were going through and the idea of of pan-Africanism, the work that needed to get done there. A lot of the struggles that were happening in, in, in the Middle East for peace, all of that, the United States' role in in that was was very much part of our informed lives. And I, I don't think that I really ever not have a time where I didn't really connect politics to to how we were living. Um, and I think certainly when you're living under a dictatorship, that that is very clear. I mean, I you know we were we were Muslim, but we were in a very secular country. Um, and I remember my aunts and and sisters talking about the fact that they couldn't wear their hijab to work or to school and how, you know, the only times they could wear it was to go to the mosque and sort of talking about the politics of that and and the 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 spread of Wahhabism coming in to Somalia and how that was shifting the the culture in the country and how my grandfather and others had a complete distaste for it. And what happens when your norm is sort of shifted. And so I, I think I always had a sense of, of what outside influence looked like, what struggle for your own liberation felt like, and how you had agency, um, whether you knew it or not, you know, was, was, was very much part of the, the eight-year-old, ten-year-old Ilhan's life. That's a pretty remarkable eight-year-old, ten-year-old experience. Yeah. And you have to give your parents some credit for that. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, and at a certain point, you came to America, mm-hmm. as many uh, Somali refugees mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, your father was a very educated man mm-hmm. and became a cab driver, mm-hmm. which is not uncommon in the immigrant experience. Yeah. Tell me about that that arrival and that, you know, coming to America experience. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a huge transition. You know, I, t- I talk a lot about this, this weird orientation that we had to go through to come to the United States. I mean, my family were very excited about the prospect of, of coming here. And we, we go through these orientation classes and, you know, my, my dad went to most of them, and my older siblings were also required to go. I really, I wasn't, and I, I went to a few of the earlier ones. And I, I just remember, like, the, the, the kind of American life experience that we were being exposed to and being excited about that and everybody being excited about that. And I remember when we came, you know, it's, this is, again, the, the untold stories. You, you get help with one month's rent. Everybody is expected to, to find a job. And, and sort of figure things out. The resettlement agencies help, but you know, if you are a literate person and, and certainly someone who speaks English or you know, family with multiple members who speak English, you don't really get help. But English language isn't 
the only thing that you need to be able to start a life in the United States after having lived in a refugee camp. And so there there were many challenges and I and I know that dad was very excited about the the ability to earn and so he he worked at the airport that was kind of his his first job and then eventually became a, a cab driver here. And then when, when we moved, he worked at the post office and um, retired with a beautiful pension. Well, the post office has, often, has been a road up for many people and many, yeah. from many backgrounds. Yeah. It's, it's underestimated. We fight over privatization of the post office. Right. And I always think this is one of the lost parts of it. That it is. These are good jobs. These are, it, was, it was a great job. And, and he loved it. You know, um, he's a night owl like I am. And so he often worked a night shift. And I I worked with him one winter, uh, my junior year, going into senior year. Is it high school? In high school. You were a postal um, worker? I I did. I worked at the post office um, because I I, I needed to get a car. Um, This is the thing you do when you're a senior. Um, And my dad believed that you had to earn everything that you had in life and uh, told me I had to work (laughs) and that he was going to help find me a job that could could get me you know enough money to to get my first car and if I fell short he'd help and so I worked a, a night shift I would I would go in and come out at um, 7 a.m in the morning and go to school uh, and, and be present for my 8:20 a.m class and I, I did that for for six weeks and earned enough. Um, for him to supplement. What kind of car? Get, what kind of car did you get? I got uh, a two-door red Cavalier. Nice. All yeah, right. yeah. It's a good American-made car. And Enjoyed it for a little bit. Benefited from a union <laughs> work did. setting. Yeah. Got a good American-made car. Did it have yeah. decent radio? It, it did. Yeah. What did you listen? I, what music did you listen to? Everything. Really? Everything. I, yeah. I I kind of really listen to. You know, I'm I'm a huge fan of pop music obviously but I, I I enjoy rock I I I have surprise surprising to many people a huge love for country music and I also just love Somali music it gives me um, nostalgia and you also you're an interesting person you are the first if I'm right about this and I'm pretty sure I am you are the first Muslim American to succeed a Muslim American in a congressional seat I suppose. Keith Ellison held your seat. Yeah. He was also the first person of color mm-hmm. to represent Minnesota. Yeah. And I became the first woman, yeah, black woman, to, woman you, of color to represent. What, where did you make that pivot from obviously growing up in a very political family to deciding to make that state legislative race in 2016? Mm. I mean, I, like I alluded to earlier, that was born out of urgency, you know, that we were being represented by someone who was there for 44 years. You challenged suppose, an incumbent yeah, in the primary. Yeah, yeah. I suppose this is the, the piece a lot of people don't know. Um, and it was, you know, the David versus Goliath kind of race. Um, there was a Somali man who was also running in the race who now um, succeeded me in that seat. And it, it, it was a, a quite uh, challenging race to think about entering. But I really believed that we needed people who understood that the, the idea of being a liberal was, was very much different than being a progressive. Because to me, being a progressive meant that you were actively seeking to create progress. 
And I didn't feel that the person who was representing us was actively working to create progress, that there was an urgency about the work that she was doing. Um, and I certainly didn't feel like there were a lot of people who were working with with urgency in, in creating positive change. And so I eventually decided to, to enter the race. And, you know, people would say to me, if you get 10% of the votes, Ilhan, you should be proud of yourself. And, and people had very fascinating advice about taking off my hijab and um, what assimilation meant to them. Um, don't be you. Don't be me, yeah. But the, the whole idea was it didn't matter what the person looked like or where they came from, that we really should be interested in a participatory uh, democracy where the, the person who seeks to represent you has fluency in your day-to-day lives. And I felt like I knew the people who lived in my state district. Um, and I, I believed that I could represent them in, in the best ways possible. We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by author Reed Hunt, a member of the transition team for the Clinton and Obama presidencies. Hunt's new book, A Crisis Wasted, tells the story of how President Obama's domestic policy decisions, made after his election in 2008 but before his inauguration in 2009, determined the fate of his presidency and ultimately led to the election of President Donald Trump. The book has been called Essential Reading for Everyone Interested in Politics and is available on Amazon and through the website, acrisiswasted.com. Finally, a word about our sister podcast at The Nation, Start Making Sense, featuring writers and editors from The Nation magazine and hosted by the coolest man in L.A., John Wiener. John's guests include Joan Walsh on politics, Katha Pollitt on women and men, Amy Willens on Ivanka and Jared, Bill McKibben on the climate movement, Gary Young on elections, and also me, John Nichols, talking about the latest news from Washington. That's Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. New episodes come out every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to The Next Left. We're talking to Representative Ilhan Omar. Lo and behold, you ended up in Congress. Yeah, who knew? Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting because you did come out of this experience where you really were drawing so much from your constituents. Mm -hmm. You get elected to Congress. It has to be an exciting thing. And you come and you have all these ideas. You especially, because of the diverse nature of your district, Mm -hmm. want to talk about a lot of human rights issues, as well as just basic issues on the ground at home. You know, Medicare for all and all these things. You get to Washington, and almost immediately, there are people who want to pigeonhole you, mm-hmm. right? They want, to, they want to get you into the narrowest definition of who you are. Mm-hmm. And as a freshman member of Congress, you've got the president tweeting about you and Liz Cheney and other people. How do you, how do you deal with that, that, that sense of people trying to make you into one kind of very narrow thing when you have obviously so much you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, a, a really a, a clear orchestrated effort to 
talk about me as the as the Muslim refugee, you know, foreign <laughs> member of Congress. And I am that. <laughs> but there's there's a reason that I got elected to be in Congress, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a refugee, an immigrant, Muslim, or women, or black woman. It's because I am someone who has a particular lens about how we approach policy domestically and internationally. And to many of the people here, my approach is more threatening to them. And I think for them, it is more pleasant for me to just be seen as, right, like this person who, you know, is sort of like an example of like hope still being alive, which is wonderful. But I, I'm someone who is agitated about things, the way things work here. Someone who believes that Congress needs to be beholden to the people and not a special interest, that we have to be consistent in our values, whether they are domestically or internationally, and that fighting for prosperity shouldn't be that hard. We don't have to settle. We can fight to, ha- to, to have our uh, Green New Deal. We can certainly get Medicare for all. We can cancel out student debt. We can certainly pass our, our housing for all bill. We can get universal school meals program up and running. But in order to do all of those things, we have to stop policing the world, <laughs> right? We We have to not have, you know, over 800 bases, military bases around the world. We have to not spend 57 cents on the dollar on defense um, while we cut education and healthcare um, and housing funding. If we truly say that uh, we believe in the young people who are so patriotic that they sign up to sacrifice their life their time with their families in order to protect our lives and to provide us with the comfort of knowing that they are out there protecting us, then we also have to provide them with the comfort of knowing that we are going to take care of their families, that we are going to take care of them when they come back, whether they have an injury that is visible or not. And so the the the, the kind of hypocrisies that, that sometimes get to be visible to me in in the way that we speak about our values and and how we carry out our values uh, might not be something that is visible to everyone. But I I hate hypocrisy. Um, And I think it's very hypocritical for us to say, you know, we love our, our brothers and sisters who go to fight for us, and then not to show them that love and care when, when they come back um, and show that love and care to, to their families. There, you'll see people who are say, I, I'm for vets. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with a congressman from Florida, and I said, you know, we should scale down our, our defense budget. And he said, Ilhan, do you know I have, you know, military bases in, in my district? And I said, well, that's precisely why I wanted to talk to you. You should know that your constituents who are vets who have families are struggling with feeding their their children 
the the number of families who have you know a mom or a father serving in the military who rely on SNAP is is nearly forty percent. Um, the the number of vets who have uh, student debt is is very high, and many of them are, are homeless or don't have the security of having a home. And so so I said, what if we spent money in providing housing for our our military families and and our vets? How about we spend money on providing you know health care for them? How about we spend money on alleviating the stress that's caused by the debt that they are shackled with. And he said, you know, it's really nice chatting with you. I'll cut you later. Wow. And so to me, that is someone who is quite a hypocrite. And his constituents will never get to know that because he'll get on a podium and he'll talk about how much he loves our vets um, and how much he supports them and how much he stands with our, our men and women in uniform. But when it comes to showing up for them in real ways, he will not. And he will be the first one to say, Ilhan doesn't care about you. Ilhan doesn't care about our military. Ilhan doesn't value our soldiers. But the reality is, I value them. I see them. I see their, their humanity. Um, and I, I, I feel their sacrifice. And I think that as a society, we should compensate for that sacrifice that they're making. And I wonder whether there are folks who think, well, we have got to identify her as anti-Semitic or as a friend of terrorists or as, I mean, run down whatever tweets have been sent. Because then maybe folks won't listen to you when you start to talk about, when you speak just in the way you did. Yeah. And you, one of the most interesting things about you is that as people get to know you, you do build relationships. You just had an op-ed with Jan Shikofsky. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a, it kind of was a heart and soul message there uh, that brings together so many things. Because you're saying, we got to go together, we got to go forward together. Yeah. And speaking about this divisive politics, this yeah. politics that tries to marginalize folks, yeah. how'd you two get together to do that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities to focus on the things that unite us if you're willing to see those opportunities. We oftentimes are forced to see the things that divide us. And so I am someone who always is trying to find, right, where, where the common ground is with people and connect with, with people. And I know that with conversation, Always, as my dad used to say, it is it is hard to hate up close. Once you are in conversation with people, those things sort of really disappear. All of your differences and your otherness disappears. You're just people. You're, you know, in the case of Jen and I, like just mothers who, you know, are from the Midwest, who represent districts from the Midwest with Midwest values, who both come from backgrounds of, of, of being a religious minority, understanding the struggle of having both of our, our, our faiths being attacked and, and, and people really being hunted down and, and killed because of it. And so in, in, in sort of being in, in conversation around that in the last few months, um, it just was a, a natural fit for, for us to, 
think about doing this this op-ed in light of what happened in California and and the domestic terrorist in in that case being linked to uh, a bombing uh, of a mosque it just was a, a perfect time to have the conversation on how really when we are talking about anti-semitism the threats are coming from white supremacists and um it's this idea of you know having islamophobia and anti-semitism being on the two sides of the same coin and the linkage of othering and xenophobia really being the the driving force of it I mean, you know i mean racism's also in 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 the root of that and so we also wanted to to uplift the fact that black churches have been attacked um so christians aren't really immune to it and around the world we see that every religious minority in in whatever form it might be whether it is christians it's muslims or or jewish people you will see that there are you know terrorists that are attacking people of faith in in a place of prayer i mean i was having a conversation with my dad in time of war the only place that you would go to seek shelter used to be in a place of worship because that that was the place that nobody would right like be so soulless enough to enter to take a life and you have people now in the name of faith taking the lives of people in a place of worship and so it that that sort of stripping of morality and humanity is is one that should shake all of us to to our core and we have to find ways to to remedy that and and bring us back to a place of of unity can we get there I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, I'm uh I'm an optimist and and I I believe that regardless of how challenging things get, how uncomfortable things get, we will always find a a path forward together if we're willing to do the work. I you know, like to to shake people into to that reality sometimes and make them realize that our our discomforts are really rooted in not challenging the status quo in that having the the difficult conversation once we allow ourselves to to talk about the the awful things account for historical trauma have the 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 kind of gut wrenching conversations you get to have with people that you feel like might have hurt you we end on the other side of that in in a more positive way that 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 strips I think as of an ugly armor um and allows us to to sort of unveil our our more vulnerable freed persons and and I believe that there is an opportunity really here in the United States for us to have a honest conversation about our challenges have a honest conversation about the things that divide us have an honest conversation about where hate is being fueled and the political nature of it and i think once we are able to do that we will eventually find our way as i say love trumps hate and we are better when we are united in our diversity thank you ilhan omar yeah thank you so It's been much a pleasure talking to you Next Left is a project of The Nation magazine, hosted by me, John Nichols. 
For more principled progressive journalism, you can subscribe to The Nation in print and check us out online at thenation.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhoogle. Our theme music is by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us next week as we head to Chicago and take the next left with Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez, a newly elected member of the Chicago City Council. We'll talk about democratic socialism, the arts and politics, the power of organizing, and how sometimes you just have to listen to A Tribe Called Quest. Next week on Next Left. Next Left.